0: Welcome to Leadership on the Go, a podcast brought to you by the Cranfield alumni team, where we speak to former Cranfield students to understand their experience of leadership in real-world situations. Hi there. My name's Phil Renshaw. I'm a researcher at Cranfield University, and today I'm interviewing Kim Lafferty. Kim is Head of People Development at GSK. Kim shares some really great insights with me into the practical challenges in her work, she also shares a lovely story of how her own exasperation led her to ask a brilliant coaching question. And finally, she talks about the importance of making sure that when we talk about coaching, we all check we mean the same thing. We have to remember that coaching is just a part of leading. It's not the other way around. and hence we have to avoid the desire to be always coaching. Anyway, I hope you'll really enjoy this recording as much as I did. Kim... Thanks very much for giving us your time today. Really interested to hear more. So why don't you start just by telling everyone who's listening what it is you do and who you are.
1: Thanks, Phil. And uh, and thank you for the opportunity to talk. Um, So uh, Kim Lafferty, I'm Head of People Development at GlaxoSmithKline. We have 100,000 people as employees spread across over 120 countries. So we are a blue chip global multinational British owned
0: Fantastic. And if you could answer that question, it's a difficult one, but what would you say you do on a a sort of day-to-day basis in your role?
1: Gosh, that is quite difficult. Um, My role is very broad. I am considered a subject matter expert in the talent leadership and organisation development, COE. And so what that involves is I could be at any one day looking at the leadership development for a particular population, which is what I was doing this morning for some of our leading leaders level of the pipeline. That would be our general managers, for example, or our site directors around the world. I could be looking at something, uh, an experiment that we're wanting to run because we're looking at the future of work. So I could be looking at uh, what would be an experiment that would build our digital capability. Or I could be looking at the launch of one of our new internal tools. We're just about to launch our revised uh, GSK360, which we've designed in-house. And that was designed because we uh, modified our values and expectations when our new CEO, Emma Walmsley, was appointed. So that product was out of date and needed to be updated. So it could be from the minutiae of looking at uh, the detail of a tool, right through to looking at uh, the future of uh, people capabilities in the organization.
0: Sounds fascinating, quite frankly. (laughs) Huge, huge range. Brilliant. What about your work at Cranfield? What is it that you do at Cranfield and how does that link to your activities at work at GSK?
1: Great question. So at Cranfield, I'm studying for um, a doctor in business administration. I'm in year four, which feels very exciting and rather scary. (laughs) And the main focus of work is around talent management and organisational justice. I think in terms of the relationship to my work, it's very difficult to describe, but I vividly remember at the beginning of the process Emma, our head of the program, saying that um, it will change mindset and you will be changed by the experience. And I believe that is true of most development when you throw yourself into it, but that's been very, very true already, even though I'm still sort of three quarters of the way through. And I think one of the major differences, and actually in my end of year PDP, my boss commented on how changed she has noticed me to be, which was really quite impressive. I think Um, I wasn't sure anybody else could see it in the way that I can feel it. What she commented on was my language and how my language seems to be affected by the rigour of the DBA. What I notice in myself and particularly in the work I do around um, digital experiments is the rigour and the science behind how to experiment and truly experiment properly with some of the hypotheses that we have around people and people development. And what I notice is uh, our managers are not taught how to do that, and I certainly was not taught how to do that until I entered the programme, where we're uh, required to do modules on qualitative and quantitative research. So for me, it has both a very practical application of a skill set that I've learned that I didn't have before with the rigor that I didn't have before, Uh, but also this notion of having a hypothesis and testing it rigorously. Mm -hmm. And I would say probably what my boss is seeing is both evidence base behind making a statement and having the evidence to back it up or disproving or questioning a myth or a Assumption or a widely held belief in the organisation where we really don't have data. That's also been another one. But I think from a language point of view, it's been asking a lot more questions about, well, we have a global survey in GSK. We know the what, but we don't really know the why. I'm really starting to look at the qualitative and quantitative evidence base that we have for believing what we believe.
0: That's really interesting, isn't it? It's that whole thing of so many of us in our management or leadership journeys sort of think we know what's right, and people around us suggest it's right, but that is a really limited amount of evidence.
1: Yep. And I think a lot of our future of work that we're looking at now, so we're trying to read all the evidence, look at so many of the themes and trends in the world at large, and looking at what that might mean for GSK and the workforce of the future. And so there's so many different conflicting point of view in some of that data. Mm. So being able to say, okay, we're listening to all the voices and all the data that we've got at our disposal. Now let's just go out and try some hypotheses on what might work here or how do we invent the future from the present.
0: So it's really interesting. So we were talking there about the data, the rigor in data,
1: analyzing
0: evidence based and thinking it through rather than just belief systems and myths that can develop in organisations?
1: And I think testing hypotheses. So um, actually, as recently as yesterday, we're looking at the strategy for the development for all messaging that we're going to strengthen in GSK. We spend a significant amount of money and investment on development, but it isn't always equal across the organisation. And I think what's shifting now quite significantly is the messaging around individuals really owning their own career and their own development. And while the organisation will always provide really world-class resources and support, it does require the individual to step in and actually access those, make them a priority and and work hard on their own development. That's important for any employee just because the future of work is by our assessment, not going to reflect the history, that we may not have people doing 20, 30 years yep. in the organisation as yep. we have historically. There will be a more fluid and more mobile employment contract potentially. Uh, but also what we're looking at at the moment is, uh, is the whole sort of liquid organisation idea where it's much more project based. People will move in and out of projects rather than sit in a role that is constant. And we don't know how quickly we'll move to that nature of liquid, which is much more akin to a consultancy practice. But uh, for sure, in some parts of our organisation, perhaps not all, it's very difficult in a manufacturing, for example, but we're looking at investigating that. Well, nobody knows. So there is a lot of experimentation that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And the danger is people just going off and having an idea and sort of checking it out rather than having a really rigorous process of what are the hypotheses that we're starting with? How are they truly tested? When we discover something, how do we do another experiment to test that? So this notion of, and the word typically used these days is agile, but how do we really build the muscle of holding a hypothesis, rigorously testing it, finding out what works and what doesn't, and moving on to another experiment in a much faster cycle than yeah. historically we would have done.
0: Yeah, It's lovely. For me, both the idea of, of continually testing hypotheses, as well, I think, as the specific example you gave, links to this whole question of awareness. Yes. Because you have to be aware to realise yes. that you need to run that sort of test.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. So this sort of consciousness, um, level of awareness, for us and and in the the sense of of coaching and what a leader is doing every day as well, becomes actually fundamental.
0: Kim, before we started recording, you were telling me a lovely story about this, you know, noticing and being aware of a a coaching moment that happened in the messiness of real life rather than the, the purity of what we'd all like to plan. Why don't you share that story?
1: Yes. Uh, so I have a small team of very highly skilled experts. And with one of those particular individuals, we've been talking for certainly 18 months about development, about what next. Um, the individual had been in the team for about six, seven years at that point. And uh, typically in GSK, people move every two to three years, not necessarily in the expert roles, but certainly there's a lot of fluidity. Mm-hmm. This person didn't need to move, but my sense was that they were getting stale in the role, that there was too much familiarity almost with the work. But very highly regarded, a a superb expert, and somebody who I would not want to lose from the organization. For about 18 months, I'd offered two or three roles where I felt the skill set that this individual had would match beautifully the. Organizational requirements, but that moving into that job would actually refresh the job as well as the person. And for me, that's always a, a really good fit on both sides. And every time I broached the conversation, it was an R but response. So, yes, and I could see that, and I could see that, and I could see that. So, yes, I agree. However, you know, I'm not sure about this, I'm not sure about that. And it was everything from I'm not sure about the manager and the relationship of the person I would be working with. Um, I'm not sure that the position of the role in terms of the team and the sort of work it's doing is quite what I'm looking for, etc, etc. So there were always as many reasons not to consider the opportunity seriously as there were to consider it from my point of view. On the sort of third attempt, I think it probably was, I really was very (laughs) exasperated. We were in a conversation, each conversation is between one to one and a half hours. So it's not a quick and dirty in and out. Mm. And halfway through the conversation, I literally heard myself say something along the lines of I'm running out of ideas. Um, (laughs) But I think more importantly, you know, stopping and saying, you know, we've had this conversation multiple times, we've examined very different opportunities over the last 18 months. If you were in my shoes, how would you be coaching you? And it completely transformed the conversation. The individual became very aware, I think, and and has a very good self sense of awareness anyway, but very aware of the, ah, but I can't, I won't. And all the very stuck language that they were using, but more importantly, of the resistance to think about another role. And we we sort of uh, laughed actually about it, um, because in the moment, uh, the individual completely recognised that I was in, a, in, a, in an impossible situation, really. And I had realised that actually me recommending different roles wasn't working. So we sort of took a pause. Uh, and a few days later, I got an email saying, I'm sorry, actually, it was out of the blue. It was unexpected from my point of view, but it was, I sorry, I recognise that actually I must be really difficult to coach and actually I need to do some work personally to think about what I want and what I don't want and how I really change and respond differently. The ending of the story, which happened only on the 1st of January, and it's now the 4th of January, is that uh, actually the individual applied for a competitive interview process in our consumer division. So leaving corporate, not leaving the centre of excellence, but leaving the sort of belonging to corporate Uh, from a mindset point of view, moved into a consumer job, which is a really exciting job. She is particularly skilled uh, for that role. So I'm really pleased that we both retained her, but also that she's got a very new, fresh and very, very different job from the one that she was doing. Hmm. So it's a beautiful example of where I suppose my exasperation forced me (laughs) to just have the sort of straightforward conversation of... I don't know where to go now. (laughs) Help me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it's a great story because, uh, you know, as leaders, as managers, we're always trying to help people. So it's natural to offer them, look for opportunities to help them. Yes. Yet when it so turned out, the the better answer, the better question, in a sense, was a question. Yes. Yeah, to turn it back the other way. Yeah. Brilliant. How... Do you, either yourself or in JSK in general, try to help people, help your leaders and managers with the uh, coaching skills? What, what do you do?
1: It's a really good question. We have what I would consider a coaching culture in the sense that we've had heavy investment for probably around 10 years on coaching skills for leaders, I'm not entirely convinced that we are skill deficient. I actually think in our leadership populations, and I have uh, leadership data to show this, that we, are, we have the ability to be very skillful. My concern is more on the busyness of the day that yeah. a leader experiences and on the pace at which work is happening and therefore the drive for either decisions, speed, speed, in some cases, wanting to make the decision rather than get others to do that for them or, uh, you know, take the space rather than offer the space to other people. So at the moment, we're exploring, so is it will or is it skill? Yeah. And in some cases, what we're about to uh, to do is to, with a certain group of senior leaders, is to look at a just a, a short refresher on coaching skill, which, of course, they'll recognize, it won't be anything new for them. Um, But just making sure we're all talking when we say that term, we're all talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then focusing on coaching as a leader and manager, rather than as a coach. So I do think that's different. I do think when you're in a reporting relationship, and when you're in a position of leadership or management, there is a different onus on you not just to keep asking questions but also to give direction and to provide support and at times to give a point of view. Mm. And I think that's where we get confused between leadership and coaching and am I one, am I the other? So we talk a lot about a coaching approach in GSK, which is how aware and conscious am I of when I am being very directive and telling potentially, and when I am having more inquiry and therefore more questions. And I am increasingly wondering whether, given the pace and the agendas and, the like I said, the busyness, it's a, we always talk about the GSK disease of busyness, whether, in fact, it's more retaining the awareness, the consciousness and the choice in the moment in day-to-day activities rather than whether we do or don't know what to do.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's wonderful. I, what I pick out from that is this, uh, I think the phrase coaching culture is being overused, because it's putting coaching ahead of leadership. Yes, It's the other way around. <laughs> yes. Leadership is the, the big category of which coaching is one of the skills. It's not coaching that's at the front. If, if you have a coaching culture, you you kind of are almost implicitly making the assumption that coaching comes first. We'll always coach. Well, if we always coach, no one will ever make a decision, I would, I would suggest, to a certain degree, because we'll all be asking questions.
1: And uh, on that particular point, I've been worried for some time that we're over-indexing. On coaching for the reason that you gave. And so what we've recently done, we're just uh, in the process of redefining all our leadership curriculum. And one of the things we looked at was precisely that, which was, we're going to amplify leadership of which coaching is one and only one of the tools, approaches, techniques, if you like, that leaders can use, but it fits alongside others. Mm. And it isn't the panacea for leadership it's not a substitute or an equal to leadership leadership has a lot more in it than that and we talk a lot about direction alignment and commitment as a definition of leadership but we have taken a very conscious choice to ensure that coaching fits appropriately within the leadership curriculum and therefore how we're presenting what leaders do and what managers
0: do Mm. Kim, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Frankly, I'd like to carry on the conversation but I suspect we'll be going on for a long, long time. But thanks again.
1: Thanks, Phil. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks so much for listening today. Many of the ideas that we discuss on these podcasts link directly to my book with Jenny Robinson. It's called Coaching on the Go and is published by the Financial Times and Imprint of Pearson. If you'd like to learn more about me or about Jenny, please be sure to visit our website, www.coachingonthe.go. Or you can just jump on Amazon and search for Coaching on the Go, where you'll find our book. Thank you for listening along with us. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, you can find Leadership on the Go on cranfield.ac.uk forward slash alumni, where you can browse our complete archive and check out new episodes.